0: And the rest of us can open to Luke chapter 1. As we prepare to think about this interesting figure in the Bible that we call John the Baptist. What's the big deal with John the Baptist anyway? What's the big deal with John the Baptist anyway? Even if you're not a Christian, if you're living in America, living other places, most people have heard about John the Baptist. Most people know that he's some kind of key Christian figure, what's the big deal with John the Baptist? Well, the big deal isn't that his name is John, because there were plenty of people in the first century who had the name John, just like plenty of people today have the name John, more so today, but it was an ordinary name. The big deal isn't that he's a Baptist. They were Baptists back then, just like they're Baptists now. Well, maybe that's not really a true statement, but they were, they were immersers then who performed religious water ceremonies in the first century, just like there are Baptists now. So that doesn't make him unique. So what's the deal? He's such a key figure in Christianity. What is the big deal? It's not because he's John. It's not because he's a Baptist. Well, the answer to the question is, the big deal about John the Baptist is his unique relationship to Jesus. John the Baptist really, in and of himself, is a no big deal. But what we're going to see this morning, and we'll see in other places in Luke's account, John the Baptist is a big deal because of who he announces, because of who he proclaims. And he's a big deal because he's so closely related to Jesus. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to focus on John the Baptist, but really we won't be focusing on John the Baptist. Because as we focus on him, we're going to see that the focus of his life, even the focus of his parents' life is actually on Christ. And so you learn a lot about Christianity from John the Baptist. We're going to focus on his birthday, and his birthday is unique. So not only is his ministry unique, but his birthday is unique. If you're taking notes this morning, we'll jot down five unique features of John the Baptist's birthday. Five unique features of John the Baptist's birthday. Pastor Mike Grimes and I were talking about what music would be fitting for this sermon, and I said, happy birthday. Happy birthday. But uh, he convinced me to, to do otherwise, and we didn't sing happy birthday, dear, dear John, today because that probably wouldn't be very cool. But anyway, um, the focus is on the birth of John, five unique features of John the Baptist's birthday. Number one, if you are John the Baptist, your birthday is unique because, number one, your parents are too old. Your parents are too old. You're going to have a very weird birthday party. Because your mom and dad are like grandpa and grandma, or maybe great-grandpa and great-grandma. But this becomes significant. It's not just weird. It's unique in a right sense. Let's go ahead and look at verses 57 and 58, where we read these words. Now, the time came for Elizabeth. You can write in your margin, chapter 1, verse 18. Elizabeth advanced in years. Nice way of saying she's old. Married to... An old man, see, the Bible's careful with how it addresses males and females. Uh, it's nice that it doesn't say old woman, advanced in years, dignified, but he's an old man, verse 18. So uh, that's what's happening. To give birth and she bore a son, verse 58, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. You have a weird birthday party if you're John the Baptist, a strange, a unique birthday party if you're John the Baptist, because your parents are way too old to be giving birth, or your mom is. And why is this unique? Why is this important? It's important because we're meant to see in Luke's gospel account that something extra, extraordinary is happening. This is not what we might call providence, providence. Okay? Uh, when we're talking about the Bible, you talk about theology, you talk about providence, where, where God is causing all things to work together for our good. Those kinds of statements, those are providential statements. They're, they're things that we can, we can see God's fingerprints on, we might say. But with providence, you can explain it through some sort of human means. This is not that. John's mom is way too old. John's dad is way too old. This is not providence. We're not, to, we're not meant to read it as an act of providence. We're meant to read it as a, what? A miracle. It's meant to be a miracle. See, God, yes, does work through providence, for sure, like in the book of Esther, like Romans eight twenty eight. but God also works sometimes uniquely, not all the time, uniquely Through the miraculous. It can't be explained. You you cannot explain this. this. This wasn't just a, you know what, they're getting a little bit older and there was a oops, like we might say. This is not that. Luke doesn't want you to read it that way. This is way outside of the oops realm. This is, you can't explain this. God had to do this. And so the people are saying, the Lord has shown you great mercy. How can you explain this one? And the reason it's meant to be pronounced as unique is because there's going to be another pronounced unique birth, the birth of Jesus, not by providence, by miracle. And so there's a parallel intentionally so. It is important to notice too in verse 58 that the neighbors and relatives are in on this it's important because Luke is trying to lay out the historicity, the historical narrative of things. And this is not one of those kind of deals that you might read about or hear about that some people in some far off island tribe kind of place were visited by God and all this kind of stuff happened and it's amazing and it's miraculous and there's no verification. Luke wants you to wants you to know there are witnesses. They're not just excited because, you know what, it seemed, it's exciting because you're having a baby. It's exciting that God has shown great mercy, unexplainable mercy. How, how could this be? So he's going for historicity, for truthfulness. We might use the fancy word veracity here. Again, going back to Luke's argument, so that you might have certainty about these things. This isn't something that happened to somebody supposedly. They're eyewitnesses. Now, number two, if you're John the Baptist, your birthday is unique or odd because your name is wrong. Your name is wrong. Look at verse 59. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And so that's according to Old Testament Jewish law. That's normal. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. And and they would especially have called him Zechariah. Think about it. Your mom and you're, you're you're this mom and dad and you've wanted to have children Especially in an older culture where you really want to have children who can help you survive You know, there's not a whole health care kind of system. There's not all these other things to rely upon You really want a lot of kids Not only that you you really want a son who can be the heir You might want daughters too, but to have a son who can be the heir And here we are. We've waited all these years. If you're ever going to name your son after you, it's going to be now. It's for sure going to be now. All the more reason for to have it not be that way. Because he's uniquely to be about something else. Verse 60 says, But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And we're meant to read that and go, What? Just like... The friends and relatives are going to go, what? This doesn't even make sense. Now, I could tell you that John means God is gracious. That's helpful to know, you know, God is gracious. We're going to call him that for that reason. But, you know, they could have named him Bill. Because, you know, Bill really means super-duper courageous man, you know. You know how those things are. I don't ever trust those things, by the way. (laughs) You go to the store at the mall. Patrick means almighty warrior, super uber studly conqueror in some weird language on the planet of Pat, you know. And you're like, oh, I feel so good. (laughs) Probably made up. Anyway, (laughs) not always, but, you know, sometimes it's a stretch. What if it meant loser, you know? I I wouldn't sell. Uh, oh, 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 defeated one, you know. Anyway. First hour laugh more than you did, but thank you. They could have called him Bill. And what I mean by that is, whatever you call him, if you don't call him by his dad's name, it's meant to be unique and shocking. Because of course, he's an heir, and that's what's most important about him. No, his name is John. His name is John. Because what's most important about him is not his heirship, it's that he will be the one to make the way, the announcement about the coming one, the coming of Jesus. And we know chapter 1 verse 13 where Zechariah hears from the angel and it says at the end of that verse, you shall call his name John. That's why. Ultimately it's because God says. It's going it's to mark him as unique. It's going to mark him as different. The guy's got the wrong name but he's really got the right name because he's meant to be unique because he's going to do a unique task 61 says, and they said to her, to Elizabeth, none of your relatives is, is called by this name. Verse 62, they made signs to his father. According to verse 20, he's, he's mute, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. You know, we can't get through to the old gal. You know, <laughs> let's, let's go for dad. I mean, surely it's time for you to exercise your, your authority in the family and, and say, no, it's not the case. Not the case. Verse 63, and he asked for a writing tablet. Even based upon the word that he uses, it's a wooden tablet with wax on it. You could draw on it. What does he do? You know, J O H N, but it wasn't in English, so it wouldn't have been that. But the idea is plain and clear. He can't talk because God has struck him to not be able to talk, but with an exclamation point, he tells everybody his name is John. It's got to be John. That's why it says what it says in verse 63. His name is John. And they all wondered. It's out of the ordinary. It's strange. John the Baptist is unique. He's different. He's got the wrong name. It's meant to cause us to take notice. Something is going on here that's not quite right it's meant to build anticipation well let's move to number three if you're john the baptist your birthday is unique because your birthday party scares people you know well you know it's late in october so they went to scary acres i mean that's that's not it but this is a frightening birth How about that for a heritage? You have have a scary birthday. Verse 64. And immediately, this is after not being able to speak for nine months, so extraordinary for his father, immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, 65, and fear came over all their neighbors. Duh, you know. And I'm asking you, why are they afraid? Why would they be afraid? Well, they, they would be afraid because something extraordinary has happened. They're, they're afraid because, like so many other times in the Bible, they've witnessed a real deal, genuine miracle. Here, the guy couldn't talk, and it wasn't just like some kind of, you know, short-term kind of thing. The guy couldn't talk. Now he can talk, and they're naming him the wrong thing. There's something really extraordinary going on here. There's something... Oh, and by the way, their they're, they're geriatric age... And now he's talking, baby's born, I'm scared. I'm scared. And there is precedent for this, by the way. Oftentimes in the Bible where there is something that happens that is miraculous, you can't explain it through human means, something that only God could do supernaturally, stepping in and doing something different than normal, and oftentimes the response, you, you, you check out miracles in the Bible. People are scared. People are scared. One of the reasons why I don't typically believe people when they claim to experience some kind of miracle. And so I'm going on the speaking circuit, and I did this, and I did that. I'm like, in the Bible, that's not what happens. In the Bible, their knees are knocking. One of my very favorite ones is where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. The storm is raging, and, and you know they're all having panic attacks and freaking out and worried, and... They wake Jesus up because he's sleeping. And then what happens? He calms the storm. And then the text says, they're terrified. They're very afraid. They're more afraid than they were when the storm was raging because they witnessed a miracle, something that is only explainable by the unique power of God doing the abnormal we're meant to read John's birth account that way. Something strange is going on. Something mighty is happening. Something extraordinary is happening here. And We're meant to see it that way. That's exactly what's unfolding. It's bizarre because it's miraculous. It's frightening people. Now let's move on to number four if you're john the baptist your birthday party is unique because you are uniquely chosen by god You're uniquely chosen by god 65 halfway through the verse and all these things were talked about Through all the hill country of judea just as a footnote. You see luke is, is trying to show that Historicity of things so you have certainty this isn't often some secluded land that nobody could ever witness. No, that's not it Verse 66, And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. This is a a mysterious thing happening here. What what is going to happen to this guy? He's got geriatric parents. He's got the wrong name. His dad couldn't talk. Now his dad can talk. What, What is happening here? The hand of God is on him. And not in some generic sense. I mean, we could say that the hand of God is on all of his children. We could say that God, because the Bible talks about how God calls. Anybody who's a believer has been called by God. But we have to remember that there's the general saving call, which is great. But there's also this unique, when God raises up a person to do something unique, extraordinary, off the map, off the beaten path, it's John. It's John. And by the way, just the pastor in me has to say this. That's why when you read your Bible, and if you read it as "Wow, this is what happened to John," so it should be normal for everybody. You're going down a bad road. You're going down a bad road. I mean, just review quickly and think about well, with Moses, what happened with Moses? Did everybody have a mountaintop experience like Moses had? No. And there were all kinds of Israelites. There are all kinds of of people. There are other believers. There was something unique and extraordinary about that event. And the Bible's filled with unique and extraordinary. Not that God doesn't love all of His children, but sometimes to do something unique and special, He raises up one of them to do something. And so let's make sure we understand that John, uniquely called by God, because he's going to emphasize and proclaim the uniqueness of Christ. So you really want a category for uniqueness. Otherwise, Christ ends up not being so unique. It is interesting too to see there's mystery involved here. The people don't know what then. What then will will this child be? For the hand of the Lord is is with him. They they know that God is doing something here. It's undeniable, certifiable. Yet they don't know exactly what's happening. There's mystery. It's less mystery for us because we know what's going to unfold. I think we can appreciate. What they must have been thinking. This is something, something is radical here that's going to happen. It's exciting. Yeah, the most radical thing to ever happen. He's going to announce Jesus. The one we've been waiting for. That's why at this point in time trying to preach the sermon, I, I mean, I always try to find application. But I'm purposely trying to use self-control. And, and to be real honest with you, at this point in time, I'm finding no application other than it's amazing because you're not John the Baptist and neither am I. So at this point in time, even though we can learn things from him and there's a place and a time to do that, at this point in time, we're not mining the life of John the Baptist for timeless truths and principles that we too can follow. Because the danger there is, by making Him just like us, we take Jesus and make Him pretty normal. I feel the temptation and all you know so many commentaries I read and Bible study tools we look at And it's always so quick to run to application because if you don't give people application They'll check out and it'll be irrelevant. So you got to tell them how this applies to their life I'm telling you right now. This doesn't apply to your life See nobody left But it does apply to your life because what's happening is John is unique and different and not like anybody here because he's going to announce the one who is unique and different who's unlike anybody here. And you want Jesus to be the one who's unlike and unique from everybody here because he's the Savior and that has application to everybody here. He's uniquely chosen by God. Let's allow him to be uniquely chosen by God and be amazed at what's happening here historically because that does relate to us. And number five, finally, if you are John the Baptist, your birthday is unique because your mute dad prophesies. (laughs) Your mute dad prophesies. Verses 67 to 80. And really, this is, the, this is the best part. Now, just to be a little facetious to, to belabor that point a little bit. Your mute dad prophesies. It's, I'm not suggesting that by that, that means they switch churches. And now they go to a more charismatic church where prophecy is normal and happens all the time. I tried to kind of make that be funny, but you know, it's not. I want to make sure you understand that prophecy here is real, but it's not ordinary. It's extraordinary because John is extraordinary, because Jesus is extraordinary. And this is an extraordinary prophecy. And the focus is going to be on God and what He has done and bringing the testaments together and the promises together. For nine months, Zechariah has been unable to speak. No doubt he's been thinking about this and mulling it around in his mind. So there's all kinds of data here. As the prophecy is ready to come out of Zechariah's mouth, no doubt it's birthed out of lots, of lots of things in his life and contemplating and thinking and meditating and praying, reading the scriptures And you're about ready to get a sip of water out of a fire hydrant here. These are great verses. Look at verse 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit. The idea is controlled by the Holy Spirit. There's something supernatural here controlling him, filling him. And prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Just... What am I going to say? I'm going to bless God because he has. Well, no, now because we've got virgin inception, Jesus, even though he's not born yet, he can say he has. And not only that, he can say he has redeemed, even though Christ hasn't done all of his work yet. It's as if it is done because if Messiah is here, you can speak in past tense. He has visited and redeemed his people. In the Old Testament, visiting, being visited by God can be a bad thing because it's judgment. Visited by God can be a good thing because it's blessing. Ultimately, when we put the first and second coming of Christ together, it's both because he visits and brings judgment and he visits and brings redemption. But the positive is in view here, right? He has visited and redeemed his people. Redemption. Redemption. What does redemption mean? To be, to be set free, to, to be released, to be bought out of, to, to, to pay for your freedom. No doubt he's, he's, he's drawing upon Exodus kind of, of imagery here, as is often the case, and it's gonna come out more. They're freed from the Egyptians. But this is far greater than that. We're, we're freed from our sin. We're freed from death. We're, we're freed from being enemies with God. And, and God has done these great things. Redemption. Set free. And this tells us this is not so much about John. This is more about Jesus. Look at verse 69. And the Lord raised up a horn of salvation. Horn being symbolic of of what what we see in an animal, but when it has power, it's used in the Bible a fair amount in the Old Testament. If something has a horn, it means it's powerful, it means it's mighty. And so we're, we're redeemed, we're redeemed by this Horn of salvation. We have a powerful Savior, not an anemic, weak Savior who tries hard but fails. No, a horn of salvation. And notice it says in verse 69, for us. He's, he's not against us with his might and power, visiting us that way. He's visiting us in the sense he's for us, a horn of salvation for us. He's a mighty Savior. Then 69 says, in the house of his servant David. And now, I realize what's happening right about now. Some of you are thinking, man, this is, you know, the the water's getting kind of deep. And this is like language I'm not used to. And I didn't hear anything like this when I watched the game last night or TV. And this is not really, you know, this is theology speak. And I didn't grow up in a church or whatever it is. I'm just, I'm inviting you to, to, to join in the fun of learning and understanding Christ better. And you'll worship him more truly. Here's what's happening. He's taking the Old Testament and he's taking the New Testament and he's showing how they all go together and all of those promises that were made find their fulfillment in Christ and we can reach way back in anticipation and it finds its culminating fulfillment in Christ and if you know anything about your Old Testament, which you may not, this might just be lighting the fire, You're going to be blessing God like Zechariah because he's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one. We've been anticipating this. In verse 69, you can just write it in your margin. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 13. The house of David. Well, back in 2 Samuel 7, you have this promise made to David, the king of Israel, that There would be ruling on the throne that would be forever. There's going to be be an eternal ruling. There's, There's going to be an ultimate king who will rule and reign based upon the promises of God forever. Well, the reality is, David died. The reality is, Solomon died. There had to be a greater David. There had to be a greater David. And they're acknowledging that this is Jesus. I mentioned this maybe a week or two ago, but I'll just to help you remember too, once again, David is the king, so he's the anointed one in the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. Anointed one means Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. The New Testament word for that is Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. So there's a reason why our Bibles say he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He is the ultimate David. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one. And what's so masterful about this too, as Luke is describing what's happening here, we're so far removed from there's an Old Testament religion and a New Testament religion. We're so far removed from that it's not even funny. We're so far removed from there's this Old Testament religion and then some people came along, some yahoos, and they hijacked the whole thing and made it mean something else. No, this is a great text in the Bible that's showing that there is this natural, this organic anticipation, longing, prophecy, bringing fulfillment. Boom. Jesus is the one. He's connecting dots. He's crossing T's and dotting I's that should cause us to say, yeah. See, I'm getting pretty fired up about this. Welcome to my little personal worship service. I was joking first hour saying, you know, if I, if I didn't preach and have an outlet for this, I think the ushers would make me leave. <laughs> Which makes me kind of wonder about some of you. <laughs> This is, this is awesome stuff. I mean, I would have to go join a charismatic church. And then they would kick me out for good theology. <laughs> I almost said I didn't mean it, but I did. Um, <laughs> I mean, in a sense, if you have good theology and you're understanding this, you should be the most charismatic as far as, yeah, this is right. This is extraordinary what's happening here. This is, let's use the technical verbiage in case that's what you're interested in today. This, what he's saying in verse 69, is bringing fulfillment to what's called the Davidic, David, the Davidic covenant. When God took an oath and promised to bring an ultimate David who would rule and reign for his people forever, And we've been waiting, 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 waiting for a long time for that. Jesus is it. Fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the decisive David. He's the ultimate David. And there are other texts regarding this, not just 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 110. We're not going to take time to go there. This is exciting stuff. This is extraordinary stuff. Verse 70 says, "As as he, referring to the Lord still... As he, the Lord, spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, again, he's he's purposely drawing similarity, that this is not a new, you know, newfangled invention. Just like he used to, he's doing something similar. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember His holy co- to remember his holy covenant. Then he's going to go on in verse 73. I don't want to quite get there yet, but he's going to tell us what he means by that holy covenant when he says it's the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Oh, this is exciting again. It's not exciting if you don't know anything about the Old Testament. But even if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, I'm hoping that this helps you appreciate so it makes you want to go back there and go, this isn't just something that somebody came up with one day. He's prophesying and worshiping God at the same time. God is going to show mercy based upon his promise to our fathers because he remembers his holy covenant. Let's talk about that for a second. We did last week too, but for the sake of those of you who weren't here, and I want it to soak in, you know, we'll keep talking about it. Back in Genesis 12 and then Genesis 15 and following Genesis, other, other texts in Genesis, but way back in Genesis 12, God takes a nobody from Nowhereville, okay, named Abram. And he makes a promise to him and he says, I'm going to make you great. Not because you are great, you're a nobody from Nowhereville. I'm going to make you great because I'm going to show my greatness. And he says to, to Abram, I'm going to make you a great nation. He hadn't even had any kids, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, all the nations, all the peoples, not just Israel, of the earth will be blessed. And ultimately, when you start looking at the data, blessed in many ways, but blessed in salvation, that all those who, like Abraham, trust in the promises of God will be reconciled to God. This is what Galatians talks about as well. Great homework for this afternoon to read Galatians. But God promises to do this for Abram. And he makes a covenant with him. He makes a contract. There's an agreement where there are oaths taken in contracts, in covenants. These aren't just in the Bible. They're they're, they're things we do. We talk about covenants in neighborhoods. Back in the ancient world, they had different kinds of covenants. God makes this covenant with Abraham. That's like a tweener version because we know him as Abraham. It's Abraham. Uh, (laughs) Anyway... But it's not a two-way street. God says, this is what I'm going to do, causes sleep to fall on Abram. And God makes the covenant really with himself. And we should be so glad that he does this, right? Because Abram is a sinner. And he's not going to keep his end of the bargain. But God is going to keep his end of the bargain. We talked about that last time. Last time we used the fancy word too. It's a, with him, and a, with God and Abraham, it's a unilateral covenant. Uni meaning one, like a unicycle. Because there's actually only one individual making the promise on behalf of everybody. You should be excited praising God today for unilateral covenants. Tell your friends and neighbors, I went to Omaha Bible Church today, and guess what I learned about? Start up a conversation across the fence today. Did you go to church today? Yes, I did. What did you learn about? And they're going to tell you, who knows what. And you're going to say, well, I learned about unilateral covenants. And they're going to think you joined a cult. Anyway. (laughs) Or the circus. The reality is, whether you call it that or not, it's an extraordinary great thing because it's God who is faithful, not Abraham who is not going to be altogether faithful, making the promise so that now with Christ coming, who John will announce is unique because we can be sure of salvation, not because God keeps his part and we keep our part because we wouldn't keep our part. God keeps the whole thing. That's how Messiah can come. That's how it can all be sure. Sure. And whether you realize it or not, if you are a Christian, you love this reality. (laughs) Because there would be no Christianity. There would be no new covenant. There would be no, no communion, no nothing, if it weren't for the reality of the Abrahamic covenant. The covenant that God makes unilaterally with Abram. And we can say, yes! Help me to be a little bit more Jewish in my reading so I can understand like Zechariah understand and praise God for it. And I'm trying to do that and help you with that. It's extraordinary. And isn't it interesting where it says um, in verse 72, toward the end there, His holy covenant. Remember chapter 1, verse 49. You can even draw some circles or some lines. God who is holy makes this covenant. Remember last time? Or if you don't, I'll remind you. God is holy means He's different. Not just sinless. He is sinless, but he's different. He's unique. He's not like all the other gods. And here he makes a covenant that is a holy covenant because it's not like the other covenants that other gods might make where it's a two-way deal where it's going to be lost because we're going to break the covenant again and again and again. We're going to be like the, the Israelites with the Mosaic covenant where God says, do these things, and they say, oh, we will. Liars. We're talking about a holy covenant, a different covenant because he's a different kind of God because he makes one way covenants because he keeps both sides isn't it great it's like yeah it's awesome I love it he's a covenant keeping God not conditioned upon human faithfulness look at verse 73 the oath still talking about covenants and it helps us to understand what they mean the oath that he swore yeah God takes oaths he swore to our father Abraham, back Genesis 12 and following, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies. That's, that's Exodus kind of talk, Old Testament language, deliverance. Deliverance from our enemies. And for Israel, that's going to be national, yes. Ultimately fulfilled in second coming, I believe. But also dealing with enemies. Satan is described as an enemy. We'll learn about him in Luke. But also, I'm thinking about what Paul says. I wrote down here, 1 Corinthians 15, 26. Paul describes death as the last enemy. Yeah. Because of Messiah, ultimately, all enemies will be gone. We'll be delivered from our enemies. And your greatest enemy and my greatest enemy is death. It's death. Well, that's why there's hope. Even in death because of Messiah. And what are we delivered to? This is a huge important question. So wake up your spouse. Um, (laughs) What are we delivered to? Verse 74. I promise I didn't see anybody sleeping. Uh, All heads bowed, all eyes closed, you know, kind of thing. (laughs) I think he was talking to me. All right, if it fits, I was talking to you. Anyway, verse 74. A little comic relief to, to lighten things up. But now I want you to see verse 74. What are we delivered to? that we, and just for the sake of the grammar, dot, 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 that we might serve Him. That's, that's worth noting. That's worth seeing. Because of the delivering work of Messiah, because of what He will do, it leads to us serving God. So it isn't, oh, God sets us free to do whatever we would ever think up. No, God sets us free based upon the redeeming work of the the coming Christ. He sets us free so that we would do something. What do we do? We serve Him. We serve Him. Why is this so extraordinary? Why is this so special and unique? It's because we're talking about restoration. Here we were made in God's image, designed to treat God like He's God, which would have us serving, which would have us worshiping. And then the whole thing goes in the toilet because of human rebellion and the curse. And now because of Christ and what he does, because of Messiah and what he does, bringing restoration, now full circle, we're now able, how about this, to do what we were made to do as human beings. What were we made to do? To love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. uh, Slash, in other words, serve God. Treat God like he's God. No doubt, this is what Paul has in mind in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, in light of the gospel, he says, I urge you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God to present your bodies, that's you, to present your bodies, dot, 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 acceptable to God. And he says, as your act of spiritual service, some translations say, of worship. Some of you you just say worship, but the idea is service. Service is worship. Worship is service when you're talking about God. It's restoration. So here it's not God saves me to kind of, you know, be a different kind of idolater. (laughs) Doing whatever I want. He redeems us in Christ. So now Pat Abendroth can do what he was designed to do as a human being. And that's to serve God. You want to know what your purpose is in life? Your purpose in life is to serve God. Because you're a creature and he's the creator. But you can't do it because of sin and rebellion. I want to feel fulfillment. I want to feel like I'm doing the right thing, what I was made to do, so I'm going to go pay $500 for a seminar. You can pay me on your way out. (laughs) Designed to serve God. And it's no wonder we have all of our isms and all of our problems and all of our issues because we're not doing what we were designed to do. In Christ, fulfillment of Abrahamic covenant, Davidic covenant, new covenant... There is redemption and reconciliation so that you can do what you were made to do, which is worship God. Pretty cool, huh? Very cool. Restoration. But we're not done yet. Verse 73. Here's some particulars. That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Would you please just think about verse 75 for a moment? We would serve him, we would worship him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. If there is no atonement to pay for your sins, there's no forgiveness, if there's no redemption, you're still enslaved. You're still in your sins, you're still hostile in relationship to God. How about this? It's impossible for you to serve God without fear. It's the very thing you do, human religion. You know, I got to go again. I got to do again. I got to give more. I got to do this. I got to light a candle. I got to stand up at the right time and sit down at the right time. And I sure hope my family lives out of fear when I'm gone so they can somehow get me out of this mess. And we call it worship. You know, it's called phobia. It's called fear serving God and it's total fear driven And he says based upon redemption in christ based upon what we're going to see happen through jesus You can serve god without fear And he even tells us even more about what that looks like when he says in holiness and righteousness Maybe a good way to look at it is this Okay, you can serve god without fear if you can serve god and worship god in holiness and righteousness Ready, go. As long as you yourself, you don't need Messiah, you don't need Jesus, you don't need Abrahamic covenant, you don't need Davidic covenant, you don't need New Covenant, as long as you can serve God, you can worship God, and you won't be afraid, as long as you can do it with holiness and righteousness. Have fun with that. Can't do it. Can't do it. And Luke will unpack this for us, too, that people aren't righteous. And since you're not righteous, it means you're not a law keeper. You don't keep God's law. You don't treat him like he's God. And I'm not righteous, and I'm not holy, and you're not holy. We just do it like everybody else does it in unrighteousness. It's all fear. It's all fear. The great and amazing thing here is He's anticipating what Christ is going to do and the great, get this, the great provision that Christ is going to make for righteousness and holiness that would be credited to us, even though it's not ours, so that we can then not have fear in serving God. We can be truly free, free indeed. It's amazing. That's why Jesus will, will go get baptized by John. John's thinking, well, what, what? I don't need to baptize you. You know, this is a baptism of repentance. You don't need to repent. What's your problem? But Jesus, as our representative, as a human being, says, you do this, we will do this, to fulfill all righteousness. It's the right thing for human beings to do, so I will do it, because I'm representing them. We need to sing the Hallelujah Chorus today. I'm like... it just doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. And now certainly on the other side of things, because, because Christ secures righteousness for us, he secures holiness for us, we can serve God without fear. Certainly on the other side, those things become practical. And yes, practically I want to do so in, in personal holiness and personal righteousness. I want to follow what God's law says. Yes, 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 on the other side. But that would be impossible if it weren't for Christ our righteousness. Now we turn our attention to John. (laughs) Verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You can write down chapter 1, verse 32, very distinct yet similar from Jesus who was called the Son of the Most High. So please notice, 76, John is the prophet of the Most High. That's similar to Jesus because Jesus in 132 is the son of the Most High. But you've got to know there's a huge difference between prophet and son. Regardless of what Islam says, Jesus is not the prophet. He's the son. God has a son. Why? Because the son is divine. The son is divine. John is the preparer. He's the prophet of the Most High. He's going to go before the Son who is the Son of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways. That's why we call Him the forerunner. He's going before. No, this, this is borrowing from Malachi chapter 3. Remember Malachi is at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. How about Isaiah 40, verse 3? A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So just as the Old Testament had prophesied and said there will be a Messiah who comes, it also prophesied and said there will be a forerunner, there will be an announcer who comes, and it's John. It's John. How will he prepare the way? Look at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation. That's how he'll do it. He's a preacher. He's a teacher to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. He's going to preach that. He preaches repentance. Verse 78. Keep going there. Don't check out yet. Because of the tender mercy of God, that's where the forgiveness comes. That's where the salvation comes. The tender mercy of God. He's not giving us what we deserve. He's he's keeping his his covenant faithfulness, his, his covenant oaths, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. What a great image from nature borrowed just like the sunrise is amazing and warming and bringing clarity to what we see but notice what it says there shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death that's bleak that's hopeless that's difficult that's painful to guide our feet into the way of peace into the way of shalom that they've been waiting for in messiah who would bring the peace you can write in your margin Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. He's, he's very much paralleling Isaiah 9, 2, borrowing Isaiah 9, 2. And I would guess there's nobody in the room that has Isaiah 9, 2 memorized. You just got to take my word for it, and you're like, yep, I guess so. Don't really know for sure. But you can write it in your margin, and I'm going to read it, but then I want to read a verse that you will know Isaiah 9, 6. And you're going to go, ah, oh, I know more Bible than I thought I did. Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. That really seems, when we read our verses in, in 78, it really looks like Isaiah 9 too. It's very similar to 78 and 79. Now listen to Isaiah 9.6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So it's the same context, talking about the same thing. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you're thinking to yourself, that's a Christmas song. Good job. It's in the Bible, too. You know more Bible than you knew. There's a reason why we sing that at Christmas time. There's a reason why it's on the cards. There's a reason why we have it read for scripture reading at Christmas time because it is a messianic, it is a Christ prophecy. He's the one that we've been anticipating. He's it. He's the great one. Then verse 80 says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness. Think desert. Think scorpions. Think poisonous snakes. In the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. What's the big deal with John the Baptist? He's a strange guy. Dare I say, as we will see, he's a weird guy. Like prophets usually were. What's the big deal with John the Baptist? Here's John the Baptist on the stage. He's this guy. Or modern technology. He's the curtain guy. He's the curtain guy and maybe we should up his pay grade, he gets to come out and say, ladies and gentlemen, presenting, so that Jesus can be center stage. So the curtain goes up, and it's about Christ, it's not about John. But there's so much we learn about Christ from John and his relatives, it's very, very helpful for us to be Christian worshipers. light of who he is let's pray together father thank you so much for (sighs) these things that we couldn't even make up the details and the intricacies oftentimes describing these people with their flaws their inadequacies and yet time and time again you show yourself to be the one without the flaws without the inadequacies and you certainly say as much about your son jesus and so impress us today with his greatness And may we live um, not in fear. May we live knowing that there is true shalom, that there is true peace because of the fulfilled promises that are fulfilled in Christ Jesus who brings redemption. And may we not be the kinds of people who think somehow we need something other than that or better than that to live our Christian lives. May we live under the shadow of Calvary knowing that our great Savior, the Lord Jesus, is an adequate and sufficient sacrifice, that he is our righteousness, that he is our high priest and mediator, and that he is worthy of our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.